Well, as probably many of you know, um, Julius Caesar is killed, right? He's murdered, and this is when Octavius was 24. And so at 24, Julius Caesar is gone, but what was key is that he finds out after Julius Caesar has passed away that he has been named as his adopted son, the sole heir to his estate, which is pretty awesome, right? Well, there are problems, though. Remember, there was a coup, so people murdered Julius Caesar. So there are enemies to Octavius and his family. But none of this would stop Octavius. Octavius had an incredible mind for strategy. And over the next 20 years, through kind of working the system, through different strategies, alliances, betrayals, killing people, wars, he managed to do what his great uncle was never able to do. He became the first emperor of the Roman Empire. Again, there's some trickery, right? It had been a republic. He somehow tricked them into making it an empire. So he was the sole power of Rome. But it's not like they weren't enjoying what Octavius was dishing out to them. Rome was incredibly wealthy at this point. He had just like brought in all of this cash from these wars, taking other people's money. And, uh, and so it was into this age of prosperity. And they call him um, Augustus Caesar. And so Augustus Caesar, um, yeah, Augustus Caesar, there he is. Um, what? Yeah, that's a true, that's a true quote. No, I'm joking. <laughs> oh, uh, so Rome adores Augustus Caesar, so much so that there is a religion worshiping him. They call and deify his great uncle, Julius Caesar, as a god, and they call August, who is now Augustus Caesar, they call him the son of God, and they call Augustus Caesar Lord, and they call him Savior, and they say that he is the Savior who has brought peace to all the world and established all things for the benefit of all mankind. Yep. He killed a bunch of people, and he brought peace to the world. 200 years of peace. So meanwhile, in the far eastern corner of his empire, 26 years after Augustus has become emperor, a young unmarried Jewish woman has an angelic vision. And in this vision, the angel tells her that she will miraculously give birth to a son, even though she's a virgin. And this son will not come from human means, but from a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And he will be the son of the Most High, the heir to the ancient throne of King David. He will rule over Jacob's descendants and his kingdom will never end. Let's pray. Uh, well, Lord, we, uh, we do just want to thank you again for being in this room. Um, it is uh, just a, a testament. I think Andy prayed this, just a testament to your faithfulness um, to carry us through turbulent times, but also to look back on, on kind of everything that you've done in our lives through these times. And, uh, and Lord, I pray that uh, this morning that we will also just be given a vision for what you are doing from here. And 
and what you desire to do among us. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you will incline our hearts towards you. Uh, we pray all in your name. Amen. So this morning we are continuing our semester-long series through the book of Luke. If you missed the last two weeks, we do have them posted on Spotify. You can catch up. Um, so Luke uh, is, a, is part one of a two-part narrative. In our modern Bibles, this is Luke and Acts, but it was originally written as one book. And Luke wrote Luke and Acts as one long story to convince us of the truths that we have been taught about Jesus and the apostles. That Jesus and the apostles point to God's incredible plan to bring salvation to all people. And this is a salvation that restores honor to the poor and the outcast and the unvalued. That restores relationships where there has been division and animosity. But most of all, it is a salvation that restores mankind to right standing with God. So last week, Christina covered Luke chapter 1. So in chapter 1, we learned after 400 years of Israel longing for God to restore their nation and to bring his promised Messiah, three people have angelic visions. The first two, a couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, are told they will have a son named John. He will be a great prophet and will go before the coming Messiah and prepare people's hearts for him. And the third person to receive a vision is an unmarried virgin named Mary. She is told that she will supernaturally give birth to the Messiah and that it will be named Jesus, which means the Lord saves. So after chapter one closes, we've seen that Elizabeth gives birth to this son, John, who was foretold by the angel. And that brings us to the beginning of chapter two. So Luke chapter two tells us three stories. And just because of time constraints, we're not going to be able to do justice to all three stories, but I'll try to hit upon each. So let's begin. If you have your Bibles, this is chapter 2, verse 1. I'll also have it up on the screen. So in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to their own town to register. So Luke begins, Luke 2, with the same person that we began our talk with, right? Augustus Caesar. And on first glance, reading these verses, we might assume Luke is just kind of giving us a time and place for this story to happen. But to the Jews, him mentioning these names would have meant something much more and to his God-fearing Gentile readers as well. To the Jews, Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, and the census were a reminder that they had been conquered as a people. These names would be reviled. They would be a reminder that they were being ruled currently by their conquerors. And the census would also be another reminder itself of Caesar's incredible power. It took an entire month to travel across the Roman Empire, and the fact that this guy like that could say census and people fulfill his command to every stretch of his empire, it shows his sovereignty, right? And for the God-fearing Gentiles and the Jews reading this, Caesar Augustus would have reminded them of how the public talked about him. Son of God, Lord, Savior. This was a man that was worshipped as a god in opposition to the one true God. 
So Luke 2, verse 4, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. So in the very next verse, Luke tells us about another sovereign, King David. And King David and his descendants were the noble family that had ruled Israel at the height of her power, kind of her glory days. And God had told King David, this was a long time before the story, he had told him that he would have a descendant who would take up his throne and would rule Israel forever. So here we are told that Joseph is a descendant of King David. So Mary and Joseph are making the long journey to Joseph's ancestral home, Bethlehem, for this required census. And little do they know, though, and little does Caesar know, that they are both unwittingly fulfilling the purposes of God in doing so. Because 400 years earlier, God had given this prophet a message. And this is what it was. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler of Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Caesar, who was unparalleled in power at this time, is unwittingly serving the one true sovereign, God. So Luke 2, verse 5, he, Joseph, went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to a firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. So while they're staying in this town for the census, and we don't know how long, at some point, Mary gives birth. It's likely that there was not an inn in this town. Bethlehem was an extremely small town. So it's more likely they were staying with relatives at the time. And first century homes tended to be kind of one large room upstairs where everybody lived, and then a downstairs where the animals stayed. Sometimes also this livestock area would be in a nearby cave. But this was kind of the typical format. And so what we think is happening here probably is that for privacy, probably for the mom and baby, they move him downstairs to the livestock area. And so they place him in a manger. I think also when I was thinking about this, I was like, if anyone has had a newborn, can you imagine having a newborn in one room with everybody else trying to sleep? It, that would be a nightmare. So maybe this was for everybody's sanity. But what, what strikes us here is, um, as I was reading this, I was thinking, all Luke says is, and then basically Mary had a baby. It is a very unvarnished account. It's very plain, right? Because what we've been told about the greatness of this child doesn't match the birth description. For royalty back then, a, a birth, especially a firstborn, one who would inherit the throne, there would be great pomp and circumstance, right? You would have a ceremony, there would be attendants and witnesses, and basically, this is just plain. This is just a birth. I think I just wonder, what is God up to here? And that's what I have to think as I'm, I'm reading that story. So continue in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. 
Okay, so now we're talking. This is something, you know, this is like, oh, okay, light show, angelic beings, you know, it's like, this is, this is actually, this feels more appropriate. I, I, I just think like, but, you know, even this account is funny because if you and I, like, we're in heaven's marketing department and God is like, okay, here's what we're going to do. He's like, um, uh, we're going to do it at night and it's going to be a light show. We're like, okay, that's awesome. Yes. Yeah. And then, and then he's like, and we're going to do it out in a field in the middle of nowhere. We're like, oh, okay, we like the outdoors. And he's like, shepherds. Because nobody liked shepherds. Maybe the shepherds' moms liked the shepherds. But shepherds were, they were peasants. They were unclean peasants at that. They were not a profession that people looked up to or enjoyed. Yes. I mean, shepherds were basically at the bottom of society's ladder waiting for a turn to get on the ladder. This is kind of a depiction of how kind of the culture was at the time. Caesar would be way up there at the top, and here's the shepherds, peasants. Why is he doing this? Why is God presenting the birth of the Messiah in this manner? This is what the angel says. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. 13. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So these angels make this incredible proclamation and these shepherds are like, yeah, let's go. Let's go see this sign, this baby. And so they run into the town, they see the baby, and then they go and they tell everyone about it. You have to hear about the things we've been told and seen. But even with this, we're still left with the question, what is God up to here? Some of these things we think, oh yeah, common people. Bring it to the common people. That's kind of us in America. We're in a democracy. Commoners, these types of things, that was not looked up to in a kind of a monarchy or even in an empire. This was not how you did official things that you wanted people to worship and to admire. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke shares a very unexpected part of God's salvation plan. The good news and this is the greatest news that the world had ever heard, goes first to the poor and to the outcast. The good news goes first to the poor and the outcast. Those that society has marginalized and decided are not valuable. Jesus himself is born into a poor family. We're told in Luke 2.24 that when, they are, when it comes time for them to offer the sacrifice, on behalf of their new birth at the temple, they give this sacrifice that is reserved only for the poor of the land. So Jesus himself is raised in poverty. And maybe this is why later in Luke 6, he gives a special blessing for the poor. He himself was poor. But it could also tell us something about God's heart. And here, in Luke 2, 
God gives these lowly peasant shepherds the honor of not only being the first to hear the good news of this baby, but also the privilege of being the first evangelist, the first to get to go and share this good news with others. This theme of God's special attention and heart for the poor and lowly will come up over and over again in this gospel. In chapter one, we heard Mary sing, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. In that song, she was not only speaking about herself, but also what God was about to do. We see that song unfolding before our eyes. Caesar Augustus, who we began the chapter with, the empire is ruled by this man alone. And he has shown his power by directing the census. This guy is not made aware of or invited to the most important birth in his empire. Nor are any of his officials, nor anyone in power. It is taking place in their very midst, and they're left in the dark. It's only given to these lowly, humble shepherds. And the angel's proclamation also serves as a kind of call-out and rebuke to Caesar himself. Because the good news here carries two meanings. It's prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah uh, 52. He says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. So it's both the fulfillment of that prophecy, but it's also a reference to the fact that Caesar's acolytes, his followers, anytime Caesar would win a battle, it was called this phrase, good news. And also, we read earlier what they said about Caesar. They said he brought peace to all the world for the benefit of all mankind. It's almost like the angel is saying, hey, here's true peace. Here's great joy for all people. Peace that will not come about by the bloodshed of others, but a different sort of peace. <laughs> but still, at this point in the story, we're left with a lot of questions. How is God going to fulfill all of this? How is, going, how is he going to bring these things about? And we're left with the same reaction that Mary has in this story. In verse 19, this is what Luke says, but Mary treasured up all of these things and pondered them in her heart. She was amazed by these events, but she also pondered them. What did they all mean? So continuing on in Luke 2, the second story begins in verse 22. So we now skip forward in time. In this story, there is a man named Simeon. Simeon is a devout Jew who has spent his entire life praying and longing for God's promised Messiah. And as Simeon is seeking God in this, God gives Simeon a promise. He tells Simeon that he will not die before seeing God's promised Messiah which is a pretty big promise, right? So one day, Simeon feels prompted by the Holy Spirit to go to the temple courts. And you can just picture him. He's, he's walking among the courts, and he sees this couple and their baby. And it's almost like the Holy Spirit's like, yeah, that's the one. Can you imagine, Simeon? He's spent his entire life praying for this moment. Like, can you put, it, put yourself in his shoes? He runs over, holds the baby in his arms, and this is what he says. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. Ah, fulfillment, joy. And Luke tells us in response that Mary and Joseph marvel at this. They are amazed by what he says. And then Simeon turns to Mary. And if you can picture this, because he, now he prophesies again, almost like a, a darkness falling over Mary's countenance and a confusion as he says what's next. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your soul too. This precious baby that is in his arms and this young mother will be great but will be opposed and will be spoken against. And pain is in Mary's future too. And that's what we see here is joy, fulfillment, pain, and confusion. What does it all mean? So the last story that Luke tells of Jesus' childhood begins in Luke 2, 41. And in this one, we skip forward in time again. Jesus is older, and his family has traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. This is a long 60-mile journey for them from their hometown, Nazareth, and this was a journey many people, because of constraints, would only make once a year. So once the feast is over, his family joins their caravan to make the long trip home to Nazareth. But after a day of travel, Luke tells us Jesus' parents begin panicking. They can't find Jesus among their company. And this is likely because at the time, men and older boys would travel together in a caravan and women and younger children would travel together. So probably what's happening here is each parent thought Jesus was with the other parent, which, you know, has never happened to any parents ever. <laughs> but for any parents who have missed. Have any parents here misplaced a child? Yeah. There is, there, is a, there is a moment of just like a panic attack. You're like, there's no child in sight. And, and just fear sweeps over you. Okay, now, again, think of Mary and Joseph. Jerusalem, where they just came from, 80,000 people live in the city. Not only that, Passover feast, a hundred to 250,000 people stream into Jerusalem for Passover. So this is not some small town they lost their child in and he's going to be the one child there. This is a city that they've lost their child in and they're a day's journey from it. So they make the trek back, hoping, will we find our child? Can we find what happened? So two days later, Jesus' parents are in Jerusalem looking for him. So starting in 2.46, if you're looking in your Bibles, after three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? 
Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. So knowing the backstory, you can probably understand some of what's actually being said in what Mary is saying. There's some pain here and some hurt. Why has he treated them like this? She doesn't understand. They've been, they probably have not slept in two days. And to come in and your son's just kind of in this serene atmosphere with these, you know, and all these teachers like, oh, this kid is fantastic. And they're all like having a good time. And you're like, you look like bedraggled and like worn down. You're like, (laughs) oh. And this is how Jesus answers Mary. Why were you searching for me? Again, remember, this is a young child. Why were you searching for me, he asked. (laughs) Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Verse 50, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. They did not understand. Who was this child? What did all of this mean? They knew, and they had been foretold, he is the son of the Most High, he is destined for greatness, he will take over the throne of David and rule it forever, but there's just confusion at this point. Who is he? How is this going to happen? What we see in Luke 2 is a mixture of amazement at this great thing that God is doing and confusion. What is God doing? And what does it all mean? So what do you and I take away from all of this? I think there is a value for all of us in reading the gospel of Luke like Luke's audience would have read it. And then I think there is also a value for us to experiencing, to experience these stories like the people in them would experience them to not already be leaping ahead in our mind and we're like, we know what happens next. This is boring. Why are you building this up like this? Can we sit in the confusion of this moment? Who is Jesus? Who is this Son of God? And what will he be like? How is he going to do these things? Because at this point in the story, we don't know. We've been told many great things about him, but we simply don't know. And in reading this gospel, there is a value in us approaching the text as if we don't know. As if we have no preconceived ideas about who Jesus is or what he's like. Right now, I'm reading the gospel of Luke to my kids. I read to them before they go to school in the morning. So last week, I'm reading this exact passage. Luke 2 is where we're at. And so I'm reading the birth narrative. Now, one of our our children has uh, what's called an action Bible. And an action Bible is like a comic book Bible for kids. He loves this thing. He has read it five or six times all the way through. Okay? So, I'm reading Luke 2. And this child, sweet child blurts out, we already know this story. (laughs) We already know this story. (laughs) But that moment crystallized a problem so many of us have with the Bible and with our faith in general. We already know this story. 
We think we already know what he taught and what he said and what he was about. We already know that there were shepherds and an angel and more angels and some wise guys that came later. And some of you listening this morning may have been so familiar, I'm not calling you out, but you may have tuned out a couple times. You already know this story. But in Luke 2, what is the reaction of the people receiving the good news? Amazement and confusion. Amazement and confusion. Amazement, giving glory to God at these great things that are happening among them in confusion. What does it all mean? As we spend time in Luke, what I want to encourage us is to take the posture of Mary. To both be amazed and to ponder, what does it all mean? Who is Jesus? What is he about? What do these things he's saying and teaching and doing mean? Because for Luke's readers, right, he's already presenting a very different kind of Savior than Rome had pushed, right? He is already very different. He was not of nobility. He had not been raised to be this great leader. He is born into poverty. And what does he do? He goes to the poor, people with no influence at all. And none of this changes throughout Jesus' entire life on earth. He spends all of his life with the outcasts and the poor, the artisans, those who are low on society's ladder. And when people see he's popular and like, let's put you in power, let's put you out there, let's make this thing go viral, we'll get you out, you know, it's like you're going to go big, Jesus, he rejects it, right? At every turn when they try to do that, he rejects it. Who is this Savior? And what does it say about God? And what does it say about Jesus? And what does it say about you and I? Because everything kind of seems upside down with him, right? It seems upside down to how we think of a great leader. Will you and I take the posture of Mary in these stories to ask the questions, to get rid of our preconceived ideas because it's very hard to not bring our own kind of baggage and our own ideas to the Bible. But if we can just sit in these stories and really question, what do they mean? What does this mean about Jesus? Let's pray.